0: Well, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, I'm James Holland, and today I'm going to be reading you a chapter from my new book, Sicily 43, which comes out at the beginning of September. Uh, And this is chapter 28, called Troina and Centoripe. And although this is quite a long way into the action, um, I've chosen it because it's... Features two particular battles. What basically what's happened is the Allies have landed on the tenth of July, nineteen forty-three. They've had a bit of a tough going, um, but by the end of the month, by the end of January, beginning end of July rather, beginning of August, um, the Germans, the Italians have largely been defeated. The Germans have been pushed back into the kind of top northeast corner of of Sicily, to the west of Mount Etna, which sort of dominates that that part of of the island. And the Allies are having to bludgeon their way. Through the mountains and very bitter and brutal fighting it is too. So um, we're joining uh, Terry Allen, who is the uh, General Terry Allen, who is the commander of the First Infantry Division, known as the Big Red One, um, and Omar Bradley, who is the commander of US Two Corps. Um, so they're they're the people at the beginning of this chapter. So Chapter Twenty Eight, troena and Chenterepe. On the evening of the thirty first of July. Terry Allen had explained to Bradley that he was now planning a much larger scale attack on Troina and had brought up not only the three infantry regiments of the Big Red One, but also the Gooms, who were being passed around as much as the 39th Infantry. Colonel Flint's men were to spearhead the attack again, with the 18th Infantry attacking from the south, the 26th to the north and the 16th in reserve. Supporting them were no fewer than 24 artillery battalions nigh on 300 guns. On paper, it was a formidable force that had been assembled. But on that Sunday, the 1st of August, it wasn't enough. The narrow and limited road network, lined with mines, bridges blown and holed by craters, meant a terrible logjam of traffic, so that much of the artillery simply couldn't get forward. Flint decided to attack anyway, and managed to get his leading companies from Sheffield's 1st Battalion onto a key bit of high ground hill 1034 less than two miles west of the town where they came up against the weakened Kampfgrupper ends although it wasn't flint's place to lead his men into battle in person he was visibly out in front and at one point stood up from their cover and banging his chest yelled hey you motherfuckers we're coming to get you he might have been at best eccentric and at worst completely mad but the men loved it by dusk however Oberst Enns had managed to rally his men, and they launched a brutal counterattack, pushing the 1st Battalion back a mile. By midnight, the battalion was down to just 300 men. They'd been slaughtered. Allen now tried a double envelopment, sending his men to the north and to the south to try encircling Troena. Getting the men into position and bringing up all the guns took time, so the next day the Americans made little ground. Even the Gooms to the north, trained to fight in mountains of North Africa, were unable to get across the Troina River. And in the heat and dust, the day's fighting was dominated by an artillery slugging match. Although the 26th Infantry, sweeping around the north, made some progress, it was not until Tuesday, the 3rd of August, when the Big Red One attacked at three in the morning, that another major assault was made the 18th was to attack from the small town of Galliano, around six miles to the south of Truina. It meant a stiff climb, and their lines of advance took them well clear of any road. So not only was their vast arsenal of motorised vehicles going to be of no use to them at all, since they wouldn't be able to get their 105mm howitzers into position, Cannon Company were going to be out of a job. With this in mind, Lieutenant Frank Johnson and the rest of Cannon Company were now attached to the anti-tank company as muleteers. Around 50 emaciated animals were hastily bought from impoverished Sicilian peasants and sent up the trail to the 18th supply dump at the base of Monte Pellegrino, three miles to the south of Troino. There, Johnson and his men improvised saddles and packs and bridles using old ammo bags, blankets and rope then loaded each of these beasts of burden with some 250 pounds of mortar shells, 12 cases of rations, or several reels of phone wire and radio equipment. This, though, was the easy part. None of them had any experience of handling animals, let alone cajoling laden mules over skyline crags and precipitous cliffs by night on unfamiliar terrain. "'How to make a mule move is still the animal's secret,' wrote Johnson." We pull on the reins, to the accompaniment of bites. We push from behind, get kicked more than once. We gently tap their ears with a club, receiving only a scornful flopping. We even seductively whisper sweet nothings in persuasion. But somehow our charges fail to share our realisation of the urgent need of supplies topside. Nebelwerfers helped stall the American attack yet again that Tuesday, as did the constant withering fire of machine guns and mortars. General Bradley visited Allen in the morning, joining him in his CP, an empty schoolhouse with the fascist slogan Believe, Obey, Fight, painted on one of the exterior walls. Bradley knew Allen was well aware of the importance of this battle, but had developed doubts about him. For one thing, he worried he was getting tired. It was also well known that the Big Red One's commander liked to drink. A battalion of 12, 155mm long Tom howitzers, six-wheeled toad beasts, had been dragged into position behind the schoolhouse and began pounding the enemy, their muzzle blasts rippling the roof tiles. Terry, Bradley said, turning to him, could you arrange to have those guns shoot over the building instead of through it? Alan reached for the field telephone, and the guns were moved back a short distance. So far, Two corps had rarely called on direct air support, but now at Troina, air support parties on the ground were radioing in target requests directly to controllers, who then passed them on to the fighters. What was needed was ground fighter control units equipped with VHF radio that would enable them to talk directly to the pilots above. That would come, but in early August 1943, the Allies were still feeling their way with close air support operations. Further trials... A much refining of methods was needed. As a result, fighter-bomber operations over the battlefield were at times haphazard. Around Choena, with smoke hampering visibility, ground troops fighting at close quarters and pilots dependent on maps on their knees as they flew, pinpointing targets correctly was difficult to say the very least. A P-40 Kitty Hawk, for example, flying at 340 miles an hour, might have a run into its target of as little as half a mile, a mile at most, giving the pilot just 5 to 10 seconds in which to assess wind speed, peg his own speed and establish a stable attitude. Even from 500 feet off the deck, the target itself, a gun battery for example, would be tiny to the naked eye and, without any kind of weapons guidance system, and only a basic gyro-stabilised gun sight through which to judge release range and account for any crosswind, whether it was hit or not, was really a matter of luck. Close air support hammered the town, but inevitably also dropped bombs in the wrong places. A column of American tanks was strafed, while our aircraft also narrowly avoided bombing General Allen's CP. All this meant that up there around Troina, close air support was only of limited help. The key as always in mountain warfare was to take the high ground around an objective because from there observers could pinpoint enemy targets and direct fire. The trouble was that meant infantry had to emerge from where they were hidden into open ground and get moving. Smoke shells, artillery, their own mortars and suppressing fire. It was recognized on Sicily for example that the distinct <laughs> of the German MG42 and the more solid rapid fire of the .30 caliber or Browning Automatic Rifle, would rarely be heard in the same vicinity at once, because one side would fire, then duck down, then the other would have a go. Nonetheless, advancing forward over open ground took guts of steel, along with determined and dogged leadership to keep the men going, and was, needless to say, extremely dangerous. Even more so on a mountain where the soil was so thin. Men would advance spaced out, perhaps ten yards apart, but that distance was often hard to maintain and, in any case, a single mortar shell or two-second burst from a machine gun could easily fell an entire squad of ten men, leaving perhaps two dead, two more severely wounded and the rest hurt enough to be out of the battle. Battalions moved forward in companies, usually 80 or so men at a time, two platoons up front, one behind in reserve with medics and company HQ attached. Of the four companies in each battalion, no more than three, at most, but usually only two, would be attacking at any one time. This meant a battalion attack generally had only around 240 men at the sharp end, and since a regiment would usually only send two battalions forward at a time, an infantry division's attack at any given moment would involve directly about 1,500 men, about 10% of its total strength. Although Allen's men at Troena were attacking across a ten-mile front. Each regiment was doing so with its individual battalions, companies, platoons and squads, and it was very easy for these to become bogged down. A platoon would start taking casualties. Men would shelter behind rocks or in the many gullies, or behind crests and ridgelines, and suddenly the attack would be stalled. Shells would be continuing to scream over, mortars crashing, machine guns burping and chattering. The noise would be immense The ground would shake and the concussion of heavy shells would ripple over the troops with a blast of wind and debris. Grit, stone and dust would clatter on their helmets. A buddy would get shot or have a leg or arm shattered or his guts ripped out or get blown to smithereens. It was amazing, really, that anyone had the courage to get up and keep going at all. And this was why assaults against a determined defender, equipped with very decent weaponry, took time. In fact, if the infantry failed to take an objective swiftly, there was really only one way of winning, and that was to grind down the enemy by hurling over twice, three, four times as much ordnance at him. One tactic Germans could always be relied upon was to use counterattack, and that was the moment of vulnerability for them, because the moment they got up out of their own foxholes and shelter positions, they faced exactly the same problems that confronted the American infantry, only worse. General Rote, the 15th Panzer Grenadier Division's commander, had won a defensive victory on the 3rd of August, but the big red one had still made ground. They were getting closer. That evening, Oberst N's men counterattacked once more against Hill 1034, where the 16th Infantry had taken over from Flint's men. And once again, American artillery ensured the Panzer Grenadiers made only limited gains. Unlike the Americans... The Germans had no reserves at all. And that night, Rote asked Huber again if he could pull back his men. No, was the answer, again. Neither Hitler nor Kesselring had authorised the evacuation of Sicily, and that meant they had to go on holding out for as long as possible. Troina was key to ensuring that. From down in the detino valley, the town of Centuripe could be seen in the distance, perched impossibly high in the mountains. At certain times of the day, when the sun was high, it twinkled and shimmered, a silvery line on the top of a briefly flat crest. The town sat on neither the Hauptkampflinie nor the Etna line, but roughly in between the two, a jutting outpost. However, because of its height, and because it lay on the same ridge as Leon Forti, Azorro, Agira, and Regalbuto, it stood sentinel to the Etna line, imperiously guarding the key towns of Paterno and Adrano. If the British could get up on Centuripe, they would be able to stare down at these latter towns and unlock the entire position around the south of Etna, and with it, Mr Bianco and Catania. Equally, if the Germans there could hold on, then they could very well frustrate British ambitions for quite some time to come. Centuripe was one of the most extraordinary towns in all of Sicily. Built on the apex of a number of spurs and ridgelines, and then spread along them, from the air it looked either rather like a thick-limbed starfish or a prostrate man, depending on the angle of view. Lying some 2,000 feet above the Detino and Cimeto valleys, it could be reached only via one winding narrow road of numerous switchbacks that ran from one valley up to the town and then back down again to the other. All around it were the arms and legs of the ridges that fanned out from its centre, and which plunged precipitously, sometimes in sheer drops, at other places in a series of six-foot-high terrace walls, elsewhere in banks of loose stone and scree. Guarding Centauripi now were some of the best German troops on the island, men from King Ludwig Harmann's 3rd Falschmjäger, the 1st Battalion and much of the 2nd Battalion, bolstered by some Panzer Mark III's, a field artillery battery, an anti-tank troop from the HG Panzer Grenadier Division. Falschemjäger had double the number of machine guns a normal infantry unit would have. One every five men, rather than one every ten. This meant that every approach up to the town was covered not only by mortars and artillery fire, but also, and especially, by machine guns, whose teams had been placed in such a way that the moment anyone attacking showed their head, they would come within the field of fire. It was the newly arrived 78th Battle Axe Division who were given the unenviable task of capturing this imposing objective, and because of the successful capture of Catananueva more quickly than expected, Major General Everly decided to bring forward his attack by 24 hours. As a result, his 36th Brigade were sent in to attack on Sunday, the 1st of August. The key to their chances of success, as always, was the fire support. Even Falschmjöger couldn't be firing their MGs properly when shells were falling all around them. But Major Peter Pettit and the 17th Field Artillery were struggling to find the right places to set up their batteries of 25-pounders. Excellent field guns, though they were. Each weighed more than one and a half tonnes and required a Morris Commercial Quad, or equivalent, gun tractor to tow it, plus an extra ammunition limber. The 17th, like all British Field Artillery Regiments, consisted of three batteries of eight guns, so 24 in all, and while they were terrific once in position, the problem in Sicily, particularly when firing at such an oddly shaped and difficult bit of high ground as Centoripe, was successfully getting them into good firing positions in the first place. Below the town, there were few opportunities for a 25-pounder quad and limber to get off the road and deploy. "'We recce almond groves on steep hillside and move in after dark,' noted Pettit in his diary. Very difficult country. Rocks, bad roads and worse tracks cratered or landslid. Everly's 36th Brigade managed to cross the open country before nightfall and then launched its attack that night, but made only limited progress, so that by first light the next day, 2nd of August, none of the infantry battalions were in the town itself, but rather were pinned down some way short, Chenteripe still towering over them, up slopes that looked even more precipitous and impossible than they did from the valley floor. During the morning, they continued to try to inch their way further up the slopes, but while progress could be made through the hidden gullies and folds in the land, the moment they emerged into the open, machine-gun bullets scythed through the air and another wave of mortars whistled down. As the day progressed, however, so the supporting artillery increasingly began to join the fight. In all, there were three field regiments and a further three regiments of medium artillery firing 5.5-inch howitzers, so the best part of a 150 guns in support, of which only a fraction had been available the day before. Getting them into position was not at all easy, because the road up was both covered by enemy fire and cratered. The engineers worked ceaselessly to repair it, so that the artillery could get into position. Peter Pettit and the 17th F.A. moved up as close as they could, but the road was a nightmare to climb. It is cut out of mountainsides, he jotted it in his diary with hairpin bends galore and steely terraced almond groves on either side. Go over and you drop for hundreds of feet. General Everly decided to bring in a 2nd Brigade, the 38th Irish, to attack the town again that night. One of its battalions, the 2nd London Irish Rifles, were to climb west of the town and capture three high features, hills 611, 704 and 703 on their maps, which covered the north-west of the town. From here, the London Irish could give mortar and machine gun support for an assault by the first Royal Irish Fusiliers, or foes, as they were known, who were to attack the town's cemetery at the end of the western arm of Centoripe's prostrate man. The sixth Royal in a skilling Fusiliers, meanwhile, were to attack up what had already been dubbed Suicide Gully, the prostrate man's left leg. In the sixth skins, 10 platoon sergeant in A Company was Ray Phillips, a tough soldier who'd fought well in Tunisia. As a rule of thumb, infantrymen, of whatever nationality, could be divided into four rough groups, which for argument's sake could be labelled A, B, C and D. Most fell into Category C. Men who were willing to do their bit, but didn't want to be there, weren't interested in using their initiative very much, wanted to keep their heads down and prayed they might survive. Category Ds were those who simply couldn't cope at all, who were terrified and would most likely crumble in the face of danger, or run away. Numbers in Category D were small. Then there were Category As, adrenaline junkies, thrill-seekers, who regarded war as little more than Boy Scouts with guns. These were the most gung-ho, and would be the first to join any special forces. There weren't many of these either. But then there were the Category Bs, men who didn't want to be in the war, would far rather be at home, but would go the extra mile to get the job done, and who would selflessly look out for others above themselves. These were comparatively few in number, but there were enough of them to keep the armies going. Typically, they were company commanders or sergeants. They were the backbone of any infantry unit, the glue around which the Category C's could function. Sergeant Ray Phillips was one such man. The battalion had moved up the previous day, 1st of August, marching through cleared minefields over blown bridges, on through Katanova and past what had been the HG Division command post. All around them they had seen a lot of abandoned equipment and transport, as well as plenty of dead. The Bioneer Battalion had gone on ahead, noted the battalion diarist, and had buried most of the dead Bosch by the time the main body arrived, so the stench wasn't too bad, but the hum of a dead mule wasn't too pleasant. Orders to push on up and take over from the 36th Brigade were received and they were told to be ready to move at 3.30 the following morning, the 2nd of August. They moved out at 4am, heading up the slopes for the best part of two miles, which entailed a climb of nearly 2,000 feet along tracks so bad even the mules couldn't cope. There was nothing for it but to hump everything themselves, including the number two radio set, which weighed more than 16 kilograms, plus spare batteries. They had been expecting to climb straight into the town, but when mortars started falling nearby, it became clear that 36th Brigade had not managed to take the peaks and that they would have to do that first. They paused on a knoll marked on their maps as Point Six Forty, hidden from view from the summit, and began sending out patrols while B Company moved across a gully to Point Six Six Four in order to attack up the right leg of the prostrate man. The heat, as ever, bore down. Exhausted after their climb, they were short of water and energy, so Brigade HQ decided they should not launch their attack until later that afternoon. The battalion was briefed for attack at 3pm, by which time Mortars and Nebelwerfers were screaming over and they started to take casualties. In A company alone, two men were killed and 11 injured. They set off at 4.30, with C company leading behind heavy artillery fire. Their first objective was point seven o nine, on which stood a large church, Santa Nicola, at the end of the left leg. Following behind were A Company, led off by Tempratoon. Sergeant Phillips had listened carefully to the briefing. There was no alternative to suicide gully. They could expect MG-42s to fire on them, and there were lots of Jerry paratroopers about. The situation, Phillips thought, looked pretty hopeless. They were also told to carry their rations as well as ammo, and the men began to grumble. Phillips wasn't having it. The damn job's got to be done, he told them, so let's do it. Phillips had a new platoon commander, Lieutenant Morrow, who he thought was a grand chap, but who was about to go into action for the first time. As they got moving, the air was soon filled with zipping bullets and fizzing shards of shrapnel. And Morrow was hit in the head, so Phillips took over command. Up ahead, C Company had somehow managed to get into the edge of the town, But there was still plenty of enemy firing at Phillips and his men as they scaled an almost sheer hundred foot high rock face. God, what a job, he wrote. It seems impossible with all the arms, ammo and weight of food, etc. Still, bashed on we did. It was Charles' play for Jerry to pick us off as we were climbing. Still, he was a hell of a poor shot and only got four of my boys, a bastard. On they went and Phillips managed to clamber up onto the road that ran around and beneath the Church of Santa Nicola, the rest of the platoon following. Then one of his best men lost his footing, stumbled and fell back onto a mine which blew him sky high. Tragic as it was, Phillips was all too aware they might have all suffered the same fate. Ahead was a small shack, so he charged it and smashed down the door, but found no enemy inside. It provided a good place for his men to pause and get their wind back, so while they rested, Phillips went for a look around. Shocked by the state of the shacks the townspeople called home, He saw the church at the end of the promontory, about 200 yards away, so decided that should be their next objective. He was now joined by Major George Hobo Crocker, the A Company commander, only recently back in the line having been wounded in Tunisia. Phillips wondered where the rest of the company was, but it seemed Crocker had lost them in the climb and his wireless set was out of order. There were only 24 men now in Temperatoon, most of them in fact not Irish at all, but Welshmen a not uncommon situation by this stage of the war, as regional regiments were filled with whoever arrived from the training depots. Phillips had also lost his mortar team and his Piat man, wielding the only anti-tank weapon they had as infantrymen. This was not a time for dilly-dallying, however. Phillips knew they had to get on, and so, having made a quick appreciation, he got his section commanders together, all three corporals he knew he could rely on, and told them the plan. They were going to make a dash for the church. There would be small arms firing at them, but it couldn't be helped. This was a key objective, overlooked the advance of the rest of the battalion following behind and had to be secured. And there was only one thing for it, to run as hard as they could. Phillips led first section, and although four of his men were mown down, the others reached the church and stormed inside, fortunately finding it empty. With the remainder of the platoon safely in and around the church, he took a quick roll call and discovered he had only 13 men left although all three of his NCOs were still standing. No sooner had they had a brief pause to catch their breath than the Germans counterattacked in what looked like company strength. We gave them hell, he wrote. Fired everything we had into the swines. Killed a hell of a lot. Good show. Being holed up in the church now didn't seem such a good idea after all, so he told his men they were going to simply charge the enemy. Out they went, shouting and firing Bren guns and Tommy guns from the hip. The startled Germans turned and ran, and Phillips and his men followed right into the heart of the town to a small triangular piazza. He'd had in mind to push on round to point 709, which was B Company's objective on the prostrate man's right leg. But the town was now swarming with more Germans who had recovered their balance. Taking cover, they fired back, but more of his men were getting hit. Phillips himself was nicked on the arm, and having had it bandaged up, tried to see if he could get any help, but it was hopeless. They were effectively surrounded. Back with his men, he told them there was nothing for it but to give the enemy hell for as long as possible. With luck, the rest of the battalion would join them. We were in a tight corner, he noted, but Jerry had to come and get us and he didn't dare for as soon as one poked his head out, he'd had it. They were still holed up as dusk descended. Elsewhere, the sounds of battle could be heard, although from the piazza it was hard to tell from what direction. In fact, by 9 pm, the London Irish had managed to secure all three of their objectives, the high points to the northwest of the town, while the foes had also got onto point 711, the town cemetery, at the end of the left arm of the prostrate man. By now, Phillips had just eight men left, and then his two best Bren gunners, Beer and Dakin, were hit. A big blow. At this point, an Italian tank rumbled into the street 150 yards away. Phillips knew he couldn't allow it to get into the fight, so grabbing one of the brands, he let it get within 100 yards, then opened up with a machine gun, emptying some 13 magazines at it. Fortunately, it did the trick. The tank reversed and disappeared out of sight. With darkness, Phillips took two of his remaining men and went out on a recce to see just how many Germans were still about, so that he could judge whether to make a break for it. There seemed to be far too many for comfort, and so, getting back to what was left of his platoon, he led them down into a coal cellar, where he hoped they could hide until reinforcements arrived. Outside, they could hear the enemy troops talking and searching for them, but eventually it seemed to quieten down, and so telling his men to stay put... He ventured out again, and this time found the rest of the battalion who had begun clearing the town. Hobo Crocker had been wounded, and so was sent off to an RAP. And at daylight, Phillips began to search for those of his men who had been killed. Found three, he noted, and as I was going to one, I found an eye taking the boots off the body. I shot the swine dead. At roll call, he had just four men still standing from a platoon of 37. Too bad he added. But we won the day. The Germans, who had already begun thinning out in the town early the previous evening, had now pulled back. The battle-axe division had taken Chentaripe, and once again it was the infantry who had had to claw their way forward, and at a terrible cost. For the survivors there would be more fighting to come, but for the time being, Phillips and the rest of A Company were able to enjoy some hot tea and breakfast, and then a chance to sleep for the rest of the day before loading up onto trucks and moving on, down the winding hairpins amid clouds of dust and on towards Adrano on the Etna line, their next objective. Goodbye, Centoripe, wrote Phillips, you ghost town of the heavens. A little way to the north at Troina, the battle continued to rage. On the night of the 3rd of August, Frank Johnson and his men were attempting to lead their first mule train up onto Monte Pellegrino, They'd not gone far, however, when the lead mule stopped and nothing would make it move again. Everyone was cursing furiously when they heard a shell whistle in. All the men ducked, but the mule stood where it was and was hurled off into the chasm below. Although we have lost his twelve cases of chow, noted Johnson, our path is clear and for once I'm glad to see the enemy make a hit. The following morning... Wednesday the 4th of August, the fighting was just as vicious as on the previous one. By now, 18 artillery battalions were pummeling the German positions. Waves of fighter bombers operating in fighter groups and wings flew over, and whether they were accurate or not, Charlie Sheffield, for one, was both very pleased to see them and impressed with their results. As they thundered over, the American artillery fire slackened and the Kittyhawks began diving down, and as the bombs exploded so troena itself disappeared behind rolling clouds of smoke and dust. They swept into Troena, he wrote, engines screaming over the gunfire and dropped their bombs right on the target. The town erupted in explosions as the planes pulled up in a steep climb, fell into quick sideways turn and roared back across the town on a low strafing run. Among those flying that day were Charlie Dryden and the 99th Fighter Squadron. Whether reducing Troina to rubble was helping their compatriots, Korsvo, was another matter. It certainly didn't particularly help the infantry assaults that day, and especially not to the north of the town, where Oberst Fullride's men carried out numerous local counterattacks. One was launched by the Italians of the Aosta's 5th Regimento di Fanteria, who managed to capture around 40 Americans from the 26th Infantry. Ernie Parle was up at the front line to see the Troina battle for himself and noticed that a lot of the men he saw looked utterly exhausted. He was not surprised. I believe the outstanding trade in any campaign is the terrible weariness that gradually comes over everybody, he noted. Soldiers become exhausted in mind and in soul as well as physically. The men of the Big Red One had been on the go since the 10th of July, almost without let-up, walking, fighting, clambering into trucks, getting out again, repeatedly. Paul had been at the divisional CP "'when a breathless runner arrived "'and went up to one of the captains. I- "'I've got to find Captain Blank right away,' he said. "'Important message.' "'But I am Captain Blank,' the officer replied. "'Don't you recognise me?' "'The runner looked at him again and said, "'I've got to find Captain Blank right away!' "'and then dashed off again.' Paul had seen enough of war by this stage "'to understand fully the plight of these men. "'It's the perpetual choking dust,' The muscle racking hard ground, he wrote. The snatched food sitting ill on the stomach. The heat and the flies and dirty feet. And the constant roar of engines. And the perpetual moving. And the never settling down. And the go, go, go. Night and day. On through the night again. Eventually it all works itself into an emotional tapestry of one dull, dead pattern. Yesterday is tomorrow. And Truina is Randazzo. And when will we ever stop and guard? I'm so tired. Again, on the 5th, the American advance was stopped before Troena, But with the ninth Division now arriving and being thrown into the battle alongside Flint's men, Two Corps was biting out ever larger chunks of enemy ground and inching ever closer, although still having to fend off repeated local counter-attacks. On Monte Basilio, two miles to the north of the town, Company I of the 3rd Battalion, 26th Infantry, had just 17 men still standing. As Full Ride's men counterattacked the hill yet again, Private James W. Reese moved his mortar squad to where he could get at the enemy and kept a steady stream of shells raining down on them. When his own position came under fire, he told his squad to pull back, picked up his mortar, moved again, and with the three remaining shells he had left, took out an enemy MG team. Grabbing a discarded rifle, he then carried on firing until eventually he was cut down and killed. Rees was posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honour for what he did that day. By now, the 18th Infantry had taken all of Monte Pellegrino and were not going to be pushed off it again by Urburst End's exhausted battle group. Forward observers could now see where the Germans were firing from and were able to knock out at least ten enemy gun positions. Over the previous six days, the Battle of Troina had become a terrible, bloody slugging match. And while it was an inevitable that eventually the Americans would chew up the defenders so badly they would no longer be able to carry on, every act of astonishing heroism from the Americans had been matched by the Germans, whose units were all horrendously depleted. Saturday, the seventh of August, was another sunny day of clear blue skies. As the sixteenth infantry began their latest advance up the steep slopes towards the shattered remains of Troena, For the first time there was no return fire. Overnight, it seemed, Rote had finally pulled his men back. The brutal battle for Troina was over.